Could you uh, please take your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 18 to 35 of Luke 7. Just a quick question to start. Does uh, just simple question? Does God exist? You'd say Amen to that. Would most of you say that God exists? Okay, good. I was just wondering. You never know. You never know. If God exists, which I believe He does, I believe God exists. Then that means everything on earth has meaning and purpose. If God exists, that's the first question. You've got to believe if God exists. If he does exist, then he does things with purpose. And if he does things with purpose, you have purpose. So the question is, do you know what your purpose is? What is your purpose? Have you ever asked that? Why are you here? Or do you just exist without a purpose? You're a wandering soul, aimless. You're random and free. Actually, I had a discussion with somebody on what does freedom mean, and I think we've redefined freedom to be just do whatever you want to do, where biblical freedom is you're able to finally do what God has designed you to do. Because we are trapped, we have been born into sin, we by nature don't do that which what we've been designed to do, and so true freedom is finally being able to do what you're designed to do. What are you designed to do? Do you know? What is your purpose? Socrates had a famous statement and I think it's true he has written an unexamined life is a life that is not worth living one thing I've always feared I mean it's it's subtly in the back of my mind all the time but I I fear this I fear facing God unprepared unexamined I want God to tell me well done I really do. I fear regret. Maybe that's why I'm a pastor, because as a pastor, it forces you to constantly evaluate. When you go to a funeral, you go to the bedside of somebody dying, you have to evaluate. Why are we on this earth? It's always on your on your it's always eating at you, honestly. Because I know God is want is watching and He's wanting me, He's wanting you to get it right. I also want our church to get it right. I really do. I don't want to be just a social club or an entertainment venue where people just feel good after they leave. I want this to be a place where you examine yourself, a self-examination room, where soul study takes place. We need to ask hard questions to face truth head on, even if it's uncomfortable. And today, we are going to have a man ask a very difficult question. He's going to ask about the object of our faith. He's going to ask about Jesus. He's going to ask, is Jesus the one we've been waiting for? In other words, is he enough? Is he really enough? Or should we look for another Savior? Somebody else? More prophets? More wisdom? Or was Jesus enough? This is going to be asked by who Jesus said is the greatest man who ever lived, who's John the Baptist. John the Baptist even wonders, is Jesus enough? 
So that's why the title of our message today is, is there someone else we should be looking for? You know, we got Jesus out of curtain number one. Is there somebody behind curtain number two and number three we should be looking for? Or is he enough? So let's read, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to John. Basically, Jesus was healing people. He healed the centurion's servants. He, he raised this widow's son at a funeral. That's what we talked about last week. So the disciples went to John, and they reported to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we be looking for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist had sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And that hour, he, meaning Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We're going to begin in verse 18, and I want you to feel the heaviness of this situation, of the context. Everything is at stake. John the Baptist is in Herod's prison. And he knows he doesn't have much time to live. He's getting ready to die. I want you to go to Mark 6, the book right before Luke, and go to chapter 6. It paints the picture of what's going on. And so you can imagine the way um, John the Baptist is thinking right now. It's Mark 6, 17 to 20. It says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Three things about John's situation. First of all, he's in prison because he took God deadly serious. And so he told Herod, you can't be sleeping with your brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. Herodias didn't like that. Herod didn't like that. So they threw John in the slammer. John wasn't really a respecter of persons. He told the truth and he paid for it. And he paid for it as a result of wanting this. This woman wanted him dead. Herodias wanted him dead. There really is nothing more dangerous than an angry, vengeful woman with power. And no, I'm not talking about our present political situation. Let's keep going. Number three. Herod knew, Herod knew this man spoke the truth. Herod knew it. He wanted to protect John. He wanted to keep him alive. So John is sitting, teetering on the edge, knowing that any moment he could be called out and killed. In fact, he was beheaded a short time after this. They were having a party. Herod made this drunken promise. Herodias' daughter danced before him, and she said, what do you want? He said to her, man, that dancing is great. I'll give you whatever you want. She goes, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he got his head cut right off. But this is right before that, and I'm sure he knew he didn't have long to live. So we, ask, we see him asking some soul-searching questions, some serious questions. When your life is on the line, your questions are weightier. They're just more important. I call them the ultimate questions, those that lend worth to your life. Was, was my life really worth it? It's funny when you get a little bit older, you ask it all the time. Is it really worth it? My choices, have they been worth it? That's what John's asking. That's what I think Socrates means by you need to start examining them. Do you ever ask those serious questions about your faith? Do you ever ask him, or do you think you have a lot of time? I have a lot of time to ask them. I, I need time to goof around and play the fool. But I'll warn you, the older you get, the older you get, the more confirmed than your habits you become. And you usually form your habits when you're younger. The older you get, the more confirmed than your habits you become. And the less you want to hear the truth, believe it or not. So John wanted to know, if we go to verse 18, one thing. Is... Jesus the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he this guy that the whole world's been waiting for, that the Jews have been waiting for? So you could put it like this in his mind. Here's his question. Was all my effort, all my time, my decisions, my sacrifices, my faith in Jesus, was it worth it? Or is it a waste of time? I mean, if you think about John's life, here's what he sacrificed. He lived in the desert, ate grasshoppers, and he had this huge following. But he said, he said to his huge following, I'm not the guy. I need to be less. He needs to be more. And he told his following, go follow Jesus. So he gave up all of his popularity. He lived out in Nowheresville. So I'm sure he's wondering, was it worth it? I want to know, is my job worth it? I mean, really, pastoring isn't. Honestly, it's not that looked up to anymore. If you tell your friends, like if, if 
I talk to a friend from high school and they ask, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. They go, oh, great. So I ask, is it worth it? I mean, especially when you look on Facebook and you see what your friends who graduate from high school and college are doing, how they are buying giant houses, cool cars, fancy trips, having drinking parties galore around the world. Man, they really know how to live it up. I have a tendency, because I'm human, to get very jealous. I'm sure we all do, if we were to be honest with you. But the, I always have the God's Word sneaking in, curbing my jealousy, which is sin. But God's Word always comes in and says, Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. The way I interpret it is, Chris, it's all right. God will take care of you. But what if He doesn't? What if it isn't true? What if... The basket I put all my eggs in is not the only basket out there. What if Jesus is just one option? Some of you have lost your friends or been excluded because you won't do things because you're following Jesus. Some of you have given a lot of time and money to the church. Some of you have sacrificed a lot by homeschooling or Christian schooling because you want your kids to be raised under godly teaching. What if Jesus really isn't all that cracked up he says he is? Jesus gives an answer to that. If you're worried about it, he gives an answer to it. We find it in verse 21 and 22. So these men, John the Baptist's disciples, asked Jesus, are you the one? And then verse 21, in that hour, so they come and they ask him, and then the next whole hour, look at the things he did. He healed many people of diseases, plagues, cast out demons. He gave blind people sight. This is all in the hour right after they asked him. And then he said, now go and tell John what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. What else you want me to do? What else do you want me to do? Who else has fulfilled Old Testament Scripture like Jesus did? He's quoting Isaiah 35, 61, 29. Who else has preached good news with such grace and conviction? Who else has healed so many and give blind sight? Who, who compares? Seriously, who even compares? And we have to ask that in our day and age because I don't think we give Jesus credit. We really don't. Some people I've, I've heard say, well, Gandhi, or Gandhi, Gandhi was a good man. No, Gandhi was a depraved man. If you really know Gandhi, oh, sure, he had these nice sit-ins, but did you know he really had a really distorted sexual proclivity? He was a weird dude. To compare him to Christ? Seriously. We are so sentimental, Gandhi. What? Once heard Ravi Zacharias, somebody asked Ravi Zacharias, I said, you think Gandhi's going to heaven? He said, that question has an assumption underneath it. Here's the assumption. There's an assumption people think they can face a holy God on their own. They can't. Well, some people say this. this is the, there's one more big gun out there. What about Muhammad? He did some pretty good things. 
This is so categorically false, I can't even tell you. This is not a hatred of a religion. I'm just telling you, you want to clean, compare apples to apples? Jesus is like clean water. Muhammad's like a cesspool as a person. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. At the age of 25, he had a spiritual encounter. He thought it was a demon, but he had a wife that was 15 years older than him, and she convinced him and said, no, you are God's messenger. He wasn't even sure if he was. His wife, who was older than him, had to convince him of it. Jesus, on the other hand, he is God's word. There's a big difference there. You could say at first Muhammad did preach peace. He did take care of orphans. But the Meccans didn't like him because he would claim to be God's prophet, so they kicked him out that made him a little upset, made Muhammad a little upset. So they started attacking the Meccans' caravans and slaughtered people and kept all of their spoils. And then when they started getting bigger, see, they were peaceful at first because they were a small tribe, but then when they started getting bigger, uh, he wasn't that peaceful anymore. He would force Jews, Christians, any, really any tribe, into total submission or annihilation. It's a good option. Either you become a Muslim or your head's cut off. Actually, there's one time when Muhammad had, and this is a lot like ISIS, he cut off 700 people's heads, put them in trenches. Jesus was crucified, and his followers were martyred. There's a big difference. Don't compare it. Muhammad raided towns, sold women as slaves, allowed his soldiers to sleep with the women that they captured, all because the Quran sanctioned it. Our scriptures condemn that behavior. Muhammad had 11 wives. His third wife was six or seven when he was married to her. But not to worry, he didn't consummate the marriage until she was nine years old. He married his first cousin, took a Jewish concubine as his wife. Jesus never sinned, never lusted, never said one wrong word. How do you compare? How do you compare? Jesus has no competition. He stands apart. He is perfect. He's utterly trustworthy. He's amazing. Look at verse 23. I love verse 23. He says, a blessing is coming to the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the person who's not offended by me. The way you can put it, you can say it like this. If you place your life in his hand, you will never regret it. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Did you know the Quran also has a surah that said, if anybody claims that they are the only begotten of the Father, they should be anathema. That's what the Quran says. Jesus says, no, I am the only begotten. If you place your faith in me, you will be blessed. No regrets. You can bank on me. This verse, if you see it in ESV, it uses the word offended. The NIV says fall away, but the meaning is don't be put off by him. 
Why would anybody be put off by Christ? Why would anybody be offended? That's a big question. Why would Christ be offensive to anybody? Well, because he interrupts, he interrupts your life. He wants you to be different. And so in a way, you could say offended people, they're impossible to please because they want things their way. And so he's going to go into this to kind of show you. Here's John the Baptist. He came, and he was the precursor to Christ. And if you didn't accept John, you won't accept Jesus. And we'll get into that in a second to help you understand it. But I want to start with this story in verse 31 and 32. So he's going to talk about Why people are never satisfied. Or he's going to describe people are never satisfied. People who just can't please, who reject God's, all of God's advances to them. In verse 31 he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And he's talking about, in verse 30, the Pharisees, lawyers, and those who rejected the purpose of God for themselves. So you could say he's describing those who've rejected their purpose. What is your purpose? Here's your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God with your life and enjoy Him forever. Your purpose is to glorify God, Christ, with your life and enjoy Him forever. But this is saying there are some people that mm, they don't want that purpose. Here's what they're like, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. They're like kids that they, they, want, they want something. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And what he's saying is, okay, we give you a nice, happy song, and you're not happy about that, so we give you a sad, melancholy song. You're not sad. You don't, well, what do you want? You're never happy. We can never please you. And so what he does is he, he brings John. First, he's going to talk about John. He said, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So first, he's going to talk about John. In verse 24, he says, John, he asks about John, and he said, if you look at John, you went out to the wilderness to see a man. What did you see? If you remember, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness he had camel's hair. He was eating grasshoppers. He's wild. And he says, what did you see? Did you see a reed shaken by the wind? He's saying, did you see kind of an easy pushover? Did you see a man of convictions? He was a man of convictions. Verse 25, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, this guy that, you know, is pleasing everybody, an opportunist who is serving the king? No. You saw a man who wasn't doing anything for his own selfish gain. So a man of convictions with no selfish gain. And then he says in verse 26, what did you go out to see? You know who he was? He's a prophet. In fact, I tell you, he's the guy who was sent before me. And what he's saying is, yeah, he's too serious. He was too serious, too radical. You can put it like this. Offended people see John. John is a representation. He's the embodiment of the law. He is declaring with his mouth what the law's intention is to do. The law's intention is to convict you. He called people, you brood of vipers. 
What's wrong with you? Repent. And the law is causing you to die to yourself. Life change. If you don't repent, the axe is at the root of the tree. People don't like that. People don't like a guy who's too radical, too committed, too sold out, too different. I can't live like the law. No, you can't. But that's the way God wants you to live. If you're to be perfect, you've got to live as John preached. But people don't like that. And because of this, they hated him. They hated him. So that's what it means. He's playing, he's playing the dirge for you, the flute. You're not, you're not weeping. Sin is that bad. And John has no trouble saying it. But people don't like to hear that. So the law comes in, it reveals to you that you need to change. I don't like that. So then Jesus comes along. Verse 34, it says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, when he came, he's full of joy, full of mercy, and he wanted those far from God to come. Anybody. But you know what the... The offended person says about Jesus, said Jesus is too easy. It's easy to believe in him. It's too liberal. He's a liberal. You know, Jesus, he, he hangs out with impure people. Come on. Somebody's a really religious person. They won't hang out with those kind of people. Can't be hanging out with the riffraff. We need to hang out with people I'm comfortable with. Where is the anti-alcoholic tirades. That's what real religion wants. Where is the demand for proper dress? Where are the standards of proper Judaism? This guy doesn't stand for him. He's a drunkard. And so basically one writer sums up John and Jesus both like this. John and Jesus both fail to conform to the socio-religious games or they fail to conform to the modern man's script which is determined by this generation. John and Jesus are branded as deviants beyond the boundaries of acceptable social discourse. People not to be taken too serious. By deviants, they are way on the extreme. John is a demon. He's possessed. Nobody living like John, nobody taking the law that serious has got to be in their right mind. You know what? What's wrong with, what's wrong with uh, sinning a little bit? We're sinners. Why are you so uptight, John, about sin? We all do it. We all do it. Why don't you lighten up? All right, so I said the Lord's name in vain. What's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. You're too serious. They called Jesus a partier. That's what they labeled him. He's a drunkard. Jesus, you mean to tell me? You mean to tell me you're going to hang out with those people that don't show up on church on Sunday? Jesus, you're not going to get mad when people wear a hat in the church? What? You've got to have some kind of standards. People like things done the way they've always lived it. Give me a Sunday religion. Tell me what to do, what to wear, how to act, who to hang around that is just like me, and don't make me uncomfortable. That's what people want. They want something that is attainable, 
to get self, feel self-righteous. If I can do a few things, if I can go to church on Sunday, wear a tie, do the right things, God will be pleased with me, that's all I want. Don't give me a totally committed life like John, and don't give me a person that accepts everybody like Jesus. Those guys are in the extremes. Give me middle-of-the-road, milk-toast religion, just where I can do enough, but it doesn't change my baseball game on a Sunday afternoon. Just give me that. That's all I need. That is the heartbeat of man-made religion, not to be uncomfortable. And Jesus and John don't play too well with that. Their objective is to make you uncomfortable, to evaluate. Why are you on this earth? Why are you on this earth? To just eat and be fat? Is that really why we're here? Why are we here? Just to watch another movie? I'm guilty of that, i got to tell you. But I, I honestly don't, like I honestly don't think when I get to heaven and I see Jesus, because I asked you a question when we started, do you believe God is real? Okay, so that means there's a real person named Jesus. So when I see Jesus and I walk through the pearly gates, the first thing Jesus is going to ask me is, how well did you do shooting a ball through a hoop? Really? How, how, what's your handicap? Is that really what he's going to ask us? Did you, dude, did you get to jet ski enough? Did you? Is Jesus going to ask me this? I put some people in your house, and uh, did you love them? Every once in a while, I'd, I'd bring people across your path that were so trapped in sin? Did you tell them how to get out of it? I've, um, I've put you in a place where you have a platform to tell people about how great Jesus is. Did you, did you say it? No, but, but I'll tell you, I, I bought some pretty cool clothes, some good discount sales. Why are you here? This section ends in a strange way. Look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This means that the rightness of God's plan, when it's understood and when it's demonstrated by those who accept it, it'll be obvious that it was wisdom. It'll be obvious it was right. When you accept it, when you understand that John and Jesus were God's plan, you'll just know it. I call this the wisdom train. Let me show you what I mean by the wisdom train. You have the first train that came down that set the track, and it's carrying the cargo, which is Jesus saves. They're connected. They are intentional. They're not separate. They are one message sent by God. John is the law. John has come to kill us. John has come to wake us up to our need. Jesus is our Savior. He has come to raise us up from the dead, from our sin that has killed us. John is pointing out our spiritual cancer. Jesus is coming to be the cure of that cancer, calling us to acknowledge it. 
When you rightly understand the message of the law that John has said, you will utterly despair in your ability to save yourself. John is extreme because the law is extreme. If you want to be perfect, you've got to be perfect. If you can't be perfect, you should start being despairing. I can't do it. I'm done. Exactly. Because something's coming after John. It's this message of Jesus, who is the embodiment of the law, who was perfect, who had no sin. They are attached. They are linked. This is what the cross does. The cross bridges us from John to Jesus. The cross shows us the penalty of our sin, and Jesus shows us the answer, the substitute who paid for our sin. Death leads to life. Law leads to grace. John precedes Jesus. They are linked. You cannot get to grace until you taste the flavor of death in the law. You can't cure cancer until the doctor points it out on his charts to you. Go to the doctor, and he knows you have cancer, but if he doesn't tell you, there's nothing to be happy about. That's religion. I like going to the doctor when he always says things are great. All you got to do is take two aspirin a day and you're great. That's like Sunday religion. All you got to do is go to church on Sunday, wear the right clothes, sing the right songs, and go home the rest of the week. It's like taking two pills of aspirin to try to cure cancer. It doesn't do it. Religion is the way people try to get around John. They downplay sin by trying to manage it by silly rules, traditions, and man-made laws. But they never go all the way to death. They only reinforce the notion that man can, man can help save themselves. But you can't. You must see yourself as a sinner before you call for the Savior. The train carries the cargo. They are connected. You might look at that and say, that's kind of depressing. Isn't there another way, an easier message, something more enjoyable? If we pass up this train, isn't another one going to come along? Doesn't God have anything else to offer? And I would, I would say this is the last thing. Is it, what else does God have to offer? Nothing. He's got nothing else. I'll, I want to end on a story, and it's sort of a, an Americana story. You might have heard me tell you this before, but it, has, it was so vivid in my mind because it was like a, if you've ever heard the phrase a paradigm shift, it was one of those things where you started to realize, oh, I've been wrong all these years. When my wife and I were in Russia, over it looked a lot like Kosovo, Ken, you, you don't realize the way they live. Like when I heard you, you saw it. They, they live that every day. And um, I had a discussion. They have a thing called a Revolutionary Day where they remember World War II. It's a big deal. I mean, you want to talk about a big deal, very few of you will go to a parade for the 4th of July. Everybody in Russia goes to their parades. Everybody. It's a big deal. It's such a big deal, they all get hammered that night and they don't go to work the next four days. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I remember talking to our interpreter and I say, why is it such a big deal? We, America, won World War II when we went through Normandy and we went into Berlin, man, we won World War II. She said, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, what do you mean? 
She said, what do you mean you won World War II? We, everybody in Russia, in this town we were at, they said they either had a brother, an uncle, a dad, or a grandpa die in World War II. I said, what do you mean? They said, do you have any idea how much blood was shed by Russia in World War II? I did some research on it. We lost 2% of the casualties that Russia lost in World War II. 2%. 2%. I never knew that. I honestly never knew that. Because I'm an American, I figured we won World War II at General Eisenhower getting those guys landing on Normandy, Omaha, all those beaches. We took them on. We took those Germans on. I saw the film, Band of Brothers with Tom Hanks. I saw it. America won. And then I started reading about stories like, have you ever heard of Stalingrad and Leningrad? In the winters where in one city a million men of Russia died? Like, I couldn't believe it. And so when those ladies were putting down their flowers and weeping, they meant it. I, was, I imagine, what if I went up to one of those ladies and I said, yeah, your son died, but we won the war. What would she say to me? What? What are you kidding? My son died for our freedom. You know what that reminds me of every time Every time we compare Christianity to any other religion, it's the same thing. There's only one person who could die for our sins. Only one. Only one came to this earth from heaven. Only one went on a cross to die. Only one was able to carry the whole wrath of God. How dare we ever give in to that? He's amazing. He is utterly, absolutely amazing. There is no comparison. We have got to start being proud of our Savior. I mean, really be proud of the cross. Paul says, I don't boast in anything but one thing. I only boast in one thing, the cross. Because on the cross, the law was fulfilled. My sin was condemned and God's arms went out open wide for everybody to become a citizen of heaven. The greatest country, the greatest land that you'll ever see. Question is, do you belong to it? Are you a citizen? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of the son he loves? I love that as a phrase. Heaven is the kingdom of the son he loves. Wow. So that means this new heaven is built upon love. That's what it's known by. Are you a part of that kingdom? Have you ever really admitted that, boy, I am a viper. I'm a, I got sin in me. I'm a sinner. The law convicted me. I, I can't do it on my own. Have you ever said, I need help? And I need the second part of that train. I need Jesus to help me. Have you ever said that? And reached out to him and said, Lord, save me. If you've never done that, then you're not a citizen of heaven. But if you have, you're, you are a citizen right now, this very moment of the greatest country ever. Ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what your son has done. We thank you for 
how he came to battle on this earth for me, for everybody in here. He won. Help us, Father, to, um, number one, stand strong on our faith, but also, number two, never doubt. Is Jesus the one? Absolutely. Help us never ask that question because we know there's nobody like him. Thank you for this day. Also, thank you for our country and the freedom we have to preach like this because a lot of places can't preach like this. We can. Thank you. I do pray that, God, this election season, God, I do pray that somehow you bring godly people into our offices to make decisions of righteousness and not just convenience. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.